thank you all for coming. And since I was gone last week, you know, that gets interrupted. And I'm so I don't have to go any more places. So. Yeah, I had some people over here last week going, Oh, last week. <laughs> no, you weren't here last week, were you? No. Yeah, they need the announcements. Yeah. Well, let's get started anyway, and if some others come then, it'll be fine. Let me try to introduce. We're going to be in a section from now on that most of you are quite familiar with, the text and what's going on and probably have strong opinions. Uh, so we'll go through it. Uh, but one thing is certain from the previous chapters all people are sinners, separated from the life of God. But we have in the light of that assertion a promise from God that we may be set free and we may have a new life. Often new life is called born again. And we have this. But what makes that promise real? How? What did God do to make it possible for us to have new life? Free from the power of sin free fellowship with God. So we want to look at that. You should have a paper. Somehow it got mixed up, but you should have it that lists this here. I've changed it. The foundation of freedom in Christ, probably Pauline's foundation for freedom in Christ. And in our section 1 to 14, there are, I've listed five things. Do you have a copy of that which says the foundation of holiness? Died to sin, baptized into Christ, the old self crucified, the body of sin rendered ineffective. And then it concludes with four commands, really three commands and a concluding statement. We'll look at those. What I've done is put down some possible ways that people have understood or interpreted this first phrase. But let me suggest if you have your Bibles, you really have go back to the end of chapter five that really introduces chapter six. And if you take the second part of chapter, uh, verse 20 of chapter 5, sin increased and grace increased all the more. So that, or with the result that, just as sin reigned in death, so might grace reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. He's going to go back with this constant tension between sin and grace. It's going to be these two kind of parallels, but opposite kinds of powers. And you'll see that. Notice also in verse 21, reign and reigned unto death. He will use other terms like king or who's the king, which is just another word for power and authority over you. Just as sin reigned, it often uses the word kingship. Now, let's begin to take a look at what we mean by, uh, where's mine, I think with the uh, various interpretations of death to sin. I've listed them out for you here. Dead to sin. You should have a copy of that. It begins on the title. My wife had trouble because I had so many foundations. But anyway, the first one, it's quite common among some folks, not among us, but it is that death to sin means that we have died to the penalty of sin, that we are justified by faith. So when you read the passage here, when he says, uh, you know, that's why he says, shall we go on sinning that grace may abound? I translate this little phrase, may it never be the case, for we who have died to sin, how can we live in it any longer? So you have died to sin. So some people see this as justification. You have died to the penalty of sin. You can find this in a number of churches, uh, but we do not hold that view. The second view is more likely for you. Maybe not. You'll find this in sacramental churches. Death to sin is interpreted in the light of the phrase baptized into Christ. And there is a relationship here. How can we live? Or don't you know, verse 2, that all of us who were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? So here the view becomes, baptism is the way which you die to sin and are incorporated into the life of Christ. You can find this in Lutheran, Reformed churches, for example. You are baptized and therefore you're saved. So baptism, we often say baptismal regeneration at that point. Uh, 
The last one is the one that I personally hold to. You do not need to hold to that. Death to sin means that the reign or dominion of sin has been broken. That is, sin's authority, it no longer applies to the person who is in Christ Jesus. Now, why do I hold that particular view? Several reasons. Let me give you some reasons. Probably the most obvious one is that we haven't literally died to sin. (laughs) We encounter it all the time. So death here doesn't mean literally cessation, that you can never be tempted or enticed to sin. So I take it to mean that sin's authority, sin's reign, has been broken for the one who is in Christ. Now broken here, this is a factual statement, it is not an experiential statement. Because we certainly haven't died to sin. But let me give you a couple other reasons why I take it that way. The first reason is that Romans 6.2 is that of freedom from sin and life in Christ by means of grace. It's not stressing justification. If you take a look, justification has already been instituted by him. It goes back to 5.1. Therefore, since we have been justified with it, we have peace with God and so forth. Since we now have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from the wrath? And on goes this, we have been reconciled to him. That has been happened. Now he wants to say, what is the benefit of that? And so I want to argue, just briefly here, that the context of Romans 6 is not justification, but it's freedom from sin and life in Christ by means of God's grace. Secondly, the vocabulary which introduces 6 in Romans 5, 20 and 21, and also 10, refers to the reigning and power of grace. These two powers, Paul is constantly working with this throughout this passage. He's talking about the interaction between sin and grace. Sin and grace are two authorities or power. Notice in verse 2, where sin reigned, had its power, and that reign ends in death. Grace is its counterpart. Grace also reigns. And the verb that he uses here is it more powerful, more powerful reign. Puts a little preposition on reign. Super reigns, which is not a good translation. Reigns unto life and righteousness. You need to keep this in mind because or justification, if you wish. These two authorities are what sets us free. We have freedom, and ultimately it will be freedom Paul will have to do from the law and from the power of sin. You're going to be free from these two things, and what Christ promises is new life, justification, righteousness. He will list all of these things. So there are two authorities here are constantly battling for Paul. Now this is going to come up again in the first verse, which we'll have to look. So I want to suggest to you then that the whole context here is these two reigning powers. And this is what you will see in number three, the larger context of Romans 5, 12 to 21. It's okay. Uh, speaks of sin and grace as two dominions or masters along with Paul's later language as sin being a master. Now that when sin was your master or you are now free from the slave of sin, you are now free through the power of grace. Fourthly, I would argue that the term died is in the Greek language which is called an aorist, which means a factual thing has occurred which reinforces the interpretation of death to sin, meaning the broken dominion for sin. And as we said before, sin, if we take it in a literal sense, we have problems because we do sin. Why do we keep sinning? (laughs) And therefore, what I think Paul is saying is, you will sin, probably, and you will be enticed, but you do not have to yield. Even that is tough to grab a hold of. But I think that's what Paul is saying. You can say no. You cannot say I could not do anything else but sin. Yes, you could. And that's what I think Paul is saying. That's what Christ accomplished for us. And so, very quickly, that is my view of died to sin. Usually, if I'm in class, I've spent a long time with a lot of other quotes and stuff that goes on here. 
The second one is baptized into Christ's death. Turn to your page on there. I have four views here. The first two are very close. The first one has no content to us, but it, you will hear about it. Well, I was baptized, now I'm a Christian. <laughs> so that's the first view. In other words, I, I seek to follow Christ's way. I don't do it very well, but I was baptized, so I consider myself as a Christian. This was what I called the ethical view. The second is more powerful, the sacramental view. You'll find that I borrow Luther because I'm most familiar with Luther. Luther would be a good example of this. Baptized into Christ refers to the rite of water baptism by which a person is incorporated into Christ and becomes a Christian. The sacramental view. Now, there are several reasons why they might take this position. One is that they would argue that whenever you see baptism in the Bible, especially the New Testament, it consistently refers to water baptism. And die to sin, that is, if you take it as justification, <clears throat> baptism is the means why you are freed from the judgment and condemnation of sin. And so you get baptized in order to do that. Uh, And the second reason I have here is a water baptism, they might argue, and repentance are closely connected in the New Testament. Take Acts 2, verse 38. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, and you receive the Spirit, the gift of the Spirit. Oh, okay. Repent and I'm baptized. So I'm a Christian and I receive the Spirit. And... Third reason is that that's a way to pr provide a logical reason for interpreting death to sin, death to condemnation, to judgment of sin, because uh, I have been baptized into Christ. So this is a sacramental view. Uh, or you can take Matthew 19.11 too. Repent every one of you and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Pretty powerful Fort Stewart statements, if I hold that view. But of course, we might say, well, repentance precedes the baptism. But could be argued that's not what the text says. <laughs> so it depends upon how you want to do deal with this. So those are some reasons why one would hold to a sacramental view. Uh, I do not, and I'm assuming you do not either. The third one is a little more tricky. I call it the confessional view. And that's what you and I hold oftentimes. And Romans 6 is often quoted when you have a baptismal service. Baptized into Christ's death refers to the rite of water baptism in which the believer publicly acknowledges his or her faith in Christ. That's more common to us. And I have no objection to this, except I'm not sure that's what Paul is trying to get at in Romans 6. But, I mean, it certainly makes a good reference here at that point. Uh, and there's a lot of reasons, you know. Perhaps one of the strongest reasons for is that the whole use of baptism, which flows through the early church, and you hear it also here, in the, is that baptism as a confession, he who confesses Christ, and so forth, we read in Romans but in practice, it doesn't happen to us because I think our words are taken as either true or false. I am a Christian. People don't say, well, were you baptized? They take you at your word. But in many countries of the world, that's not true. I was in China, and you can see it all over. You can say as long as you want that you were, you were a Christian. Doesn't mean a thing. But you participate in an open public ritual it's taken extremely serious. Oh, you must admit. So public performances of those kind as a confession are very, very important in other languages. I don't know about Africa or, or other places, but that's true for Chinese and I'm sure for other kinds of places as well. So now it must be serious. I think I've given this illustration once in a uh, sermon that there's a young man, we had a church on the island there that he attended he became a Christian and wanted to be baptized. So he did. He told his parents he's going to be baptized down in South China Sea, not far away. And 
participated in his baptism. He went home and all of his little small personal goods were set out in front of his little house. He was never allowed back in his house again because he got baptized. <laughs> all people can see. They know what's going on, you know. This in your face, you do it in an outward expression at this point. And, and we do it too. And it, I think it takes merit for sometimes people don't want to do it, and, and even today, because it's, a, it's still a public kind of thing where you, I've never said it to anybody, but now I want you all to know that I accept Christ. So there's, there's legitimacy for that. The last one is the one that I personally hold to. Baptized into Christ does not refer to the rite of water baptism. And a reason I take that is the word baptism is never again used in all of the epistle to the Romans. It's just used here. And so I take it as a metaphor at this point. It is a metaphor that indicates identification or union with Christ through the gift of the indwelling Holy Spirit. So you come, Paul is trying to say, and really a number of authors, and I won't quote all of these guys to you, say Paul never explains in a fully different way what baptism is. He often refers to it that you came to Christ and this is what it means. And that's what he's doing in Romans 6 in my view. You were baptized, you're now in a new phrase, and this is what it entails for that to occur at this point. So I take it, baptism, as a metaphor here. So you are in sin. I think this is Paul's meaning. Here's sin and grace. These are two powerful authorities. Baptism is used as a metaphor for me for transfer or participation. What am I writing? Transfer? I don't know what I'm writing. Anyway, transfer from this realm to this realm. I often use the illustration of hypothetical illustration. Say that you work at a big major company and you are the secretary for the vice president of finance. Big position. But he's a tyrant of a fellow. And uh, he often makes you work after. You have two children, you're a single mother, you have to pay for food, all kinds of things, and you really need this job. But he makes you work after work. If your children are ill, you can't. Well, yeah. And you've missed a couple of times, and he's very upset. He says, you miss one more time, you're fired. Well, the child is sick, and so she misses. She comes back, and he tells him, you're fired. You don't work here anymore. Fortunately, sick of my illustration, the vice president of the company lost his secretary and approached you about moving from this one to this one. And he's a good guy. If your child's sick, stay home, so forth. And it's a radical change from here to here. And that's what Paul's trying to get at. You've moved out of this authority into a whole new authority with all the benefits that come to that authority. And baptism, in my view, is used of this transfer or participate, to participate in here and not in here any longer. So he uses it in that sense, in my view. Now, you do not have to hold that view, but you can if you wish. <laughs> can you uh, yeah. back that up possibly too with um, uh, Ephesians 4? 22? Uh, actually, 4, uh, 4. four. There is one body, one spirit, just as you have been called. Oh, yeah. One glorious hope for the future. There is also one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Yes, I would. I would connect it there too. As a chaplain over at the jail, we've had we've had that this teaching come through that yeah. if you aren't baptized, you're not safe. Yeah. And the jail can provide baptism us immersion baptism. Yeah. And man, I'll tell you what, when it when that philosophy or that teaching goes through, it's like these guys, I gotta be baptized, I gotta yeah. be baptized, or I'm gonna go to hell. Yeah. No, you were baptized when you asked to receive Christ as your as your personal Savior. You were baptized in the Holy Spirit. Yeah. And that's why even in this argument of Paul, as he goes on, he doesn't talk about baptism in Romans ever again. And the reason is, he's assuming 
you were baptized. Now, here's the benefits of what happened. Here's the consequences of being united with Christ. Baptism was the transfer. It's not a grace. It's a transfer to belong to the authority of grace at this point. Yeah. It's what you said about the, the cultural sometimes <clears throat> yeah. plays into it. I think they get a lot of that. Oh, yeah. yeah. If they've never been in an evangelical church, you know, but they've gone to as children to another church, that that's the case, you know. Yeah. Uh, and it's taught a lot. It's taught a lot or in a lot of varying churches outside a strong evangelical context. Where do our Lutheran brothers sit on this whole situation yeah, they would be they would be there too. They would believe that sin is there, baptism is into Christ, into the benefits of grace. They would just do a young age with it. They do it as a young age is a little different. Since all persons are sinners, even children, yeah. if children should die and they haven't been baptized, which is God's provided means for entrance in the kingdom of God, they'll go to hell. And so we as Christians, and I don't know, I haven't researched the history of this, but we say no, because they're innocent. So they're not sinners. Oh no, everybody's a sinner, so you have that contradiction. If everybody's a sinner, and you can support it if I could just do that. The consequence of sin, for me, and we'll get to this, is not the sinful nature, but death, if you look through the... Death is a consequence, and everybody... So a child experiences death, too. So they must be sinners. And we'd have to agree with that in some sense there. So I developed, in this little book that some of you talked about, I developed the condemnation of God on two levels. There's the corporate level, in Adam, where all people are involved. And so death comes to everyone constituted the fact that you are a sinner. And I'm talking about physical death here. But there's also in the Bible personal responsibility. So things that you commit or things you do, you are held. You have it in Revelation, you have it in Matthew. Jesus says, and the coming of the day when everyone will give an account for what he's done, whether good or evil. You have it in Revelation too. And Christ comes, he will look at what you have done and call you accountable for what you have done. So, I say yes. In Adam, we have all experienced death, so we're under some condemnation. But here, there's also a personal. So this, if it's a corporate one, this doesn't make any sense. A judicial view of sin and death here. Sin is a, then there's no need for this. But there is this. So I would say, I would put it here, children who have not actually engaged thoughtfully and personally are not constituted as sinners before God. That's my view, okay? I develop a twofold view here, or a twofold standard of, of judgment at this point. I'm waiting for somebody to read my book and say, you're wrong. <laughs> but I stuck it in there anyway. And so. It happens at a pretty young age, though, I think. Yeah. Yeah, it can. We don't know when and when they purposefully know they should not do a wrong thing. Then they become accountable. And they all will do it. I mean, everybody does it. Right. This is only to account for the death of children for me. Yes? Yeah, does that also come out of Jesus and they would talk about his young childhood. He always kind of hid him from his teenage years up when he was actually in the temple, but not from his two-year-old to yeah. 13-year-old. Right. That brain. Could well be. I just, one day, my students were pressing me because this is so dominant. I said, well, what do you do if a child dies? Because death is a consequence of Adam's sin into the world. Therefore, through one man's sin, came, through sin came death. Therefore, that came... And then it says, this is an Augustinian translation. He didn't know Greek, but he did it from the Latin text. Therefore, because all have sinned, it means that you all somehow sinners in Adam. But it's really, I hate to give you some of this stuff, you know. But <laughs> Effie, I forget what it was now. Effie Hall, where it is? Effie Hall. On a pound of which... 
sin is raised. Therefore, all are sinners because of death. All people are constituted sinners. That's the way I interpret that. And upon which death has come, therefore, all are sinners. If you don't die, okay, but I don't know anybody. And then somebody remember, well, what about Elisha went up into heaven and somebody else, you know? There are special circumstances, I'm sure. But a good question. Thank you. So I take baptism again here as a metaphor. And uh, another reason is the verb is here, baptized, which is an aorist passive. You were baptized means something was done for us exclusively by God. We cannot do it ourselves. So you were baptized into Christ's death. And the into, this is a little preposition that is, really has the idea of results in something. Something happened out here which was done for you. You were baptized by God through the Holy Spirit into Christ and into grace at this point. Okay. Now let's get to the really hard one. <laughs> Where we will have some struggles. <laughs> this is, if we read in the text, you were baptized into Christ, and then you have similar terms in verse 4. We were therefore buried with him through baptism and death for the purpose that just as Christ was raised through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Then he picks up the same theme, for if we have been united with him in his death like this, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. So still the same idea is going on with Paul, it seems to me. But then verse 6, for you know, and here's a rationale, our old self was crucified with him. Okay. There are several interpretations that may go. The first one is a Lutheran. I first came across this when I wanted to do some more study, so I went to Luther Seminary. And my teacher, Gerhard Ferdi, is one of the leading Lutheran theologians. And he, in the little book that I did, I had him write the Lutheran view on sanctification. I think it's the best thing written by a Lutheran. But anyway, that would be the first one. The old self designates the human response against unconditional grace. So the old man, the old person, this is probably better, the old person is the one who does not like unconditional grace. So we want to add things. I want to make sure faith will keep its promise. God will. So I do things to make it. And Luther says, no. It's, you're saved by faith alone, period. Do not add anything onto it. And he takes a good whack at us <laughs> in this article that he wrote. Um, unconditional grace. It is what can you ever add to the redemptive work of Christ? Nothing. But it's hard to live by faith alone. Too many hard things happen in our lives. We wonder where in the world is God at this point. But this being the old man is the person who wants to get assurance that this thing, God's promise of freedom and justification are going to be kept and held together. And so we always want to do something to make sure God's Remind, remember, Lord, I did this, this, this. I always tell my students, if I promise you to get an A in this class, and you've got C's on all your exams, but you promised. Yeah, I know, but you were supposed to go out every day and wash off my old truck. <laughs> How many times did you do that? And that's the problem when you try to say, you know, works has is important for, maybe you forgot some, you know. Maybe you didn't wash it one day, see. But that's what Luther is about. He does not want anything to do with the law in his way. So that's the first one. The second one is very, very common among evangelicals. Almost the majority of evangelicals would hold to this view. The old self designates a sinful nature which persists in its desires to control the life of the believer and is therefore in conflict with the spirit. So the old self is in a conflict. So the old self, probably self is not a good one. 
a lot of scholars want to say the old person and make it more not so specific at this point. So the old self or the old man or the old person is in conflict with the spirit, the new life. And these, this is the spiritual conflict that all of us experience. Now, why do you like this view? Any reason? I know we accept it, and that's what it is. And we have this conflict all the time. Well, I'll give you a couple reasons why people might like this. Couple things. Galatians, if my memory is still working all right. Galatians 7.14. Struggle between the flesh and the spirit so that you cannot do what you want. The old man is powerful. He can overcome you so that you engage in sinful practice. And he compares that, which is a pretty interesting argument, with Romans 7, 14 to the end. Where you get the same phrase, you cannot do what you want. The two phrases are almost, in the Greek text, identical. Uh, and the other one goes down, I can't remember which verse it is in Romans 7. There's only six chapters in Galatians. Yeah, that's what I was going to Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I was going by memory. Thank you. Uh, I'll have to check it out. Say that. I think it's... <laughs> look, at, look at five. Is it in five? Yes. The sinful nature wants to do evil, which yeah. is just the opposite of what the spirit wants. Yeah. But there's another one where this phrase goes. Let me see if I put a check on this somewhere. I I'm looking for the Galatians passage. Oh, it's 517. Galatians 714, going to go to the test. That's probably when he wrote. I remember getting this wrong. Who is he? You'd like a ride home. So the old nature and the new natures are in conflict, one with another, so that you cannot do what you want. It's that phrase, so that you cannot do what you want. Many people try to, or the whole of Romans 7, too. I'm struggling, what I want to do, I do not do, and so forth, is a part of this interpretation. Well, so which one do you hold? I hold to number. I hold to number three, but let me say it different. The old man refers to the person's former life in Adam, in rebellion against God, under control of sin, and the condemnation of the law. And you will have somewhere in that writing from D.S. Dockery, old person and new person are not ontological, but relational in orientation. They speak not of a change in nature, but of a change in relationship. That will be somewhere in there. I want to argue, and that's why I struggle with the term old nature and new nature. The word nature is never applied in the New Testament, writes uh, Russell... I forget that he wrote a book called Christian Perspectives on Human Nature. And the word nature, phusis, is never applied to either one. If I have a sinful nature, my struggle was in the early days of writing, if I have a sinful nature, <laughs> don't command me to be good. Because <laughs> I can't do it. It's impossible. And so we all struggle. And then we say, well, grace abounds. And we often affirm ourselves, seems to me as Christians, that we are sinners 
so bad that the grace of God now extends more and more to me. So I grab it. So the more I say this, the more this abounds. Remember? Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And I don't have any freedom because my whole life understanding of myself as a Christian is seen by the fact that I am a sinner. But, thank God for his grace and forgiveness. <clears throat> <clears throat> yeah. Um, what would be the difference between the number two and number three? Is it just because of the nature part? Yes, primarily. But if Paul has, and I tried to suggest to you, this whole concept, old and new, are they natures or are they relationships? As, as Dockery's argues, old nature applies to the way I live my life before Christ, in Adam. New nature is my life in Christ. So the old and new are in constant conflict. I mean, they are historically two corporate realms of living. This is my view. So you have, here's Jewish way of living, and here's the Christian way of living. You have, you do not take old cloth and put it on new things. The same thing you find in Jesus all the time. You have this conflict. So I'm arguing that the old man refers to the old life in Adam, the new is the new life in Christ. They're they are in contradiction, but I can be a Christian and live as though by my life. So I have argued that old man and new man refer to lifestyles or virtues. I've said this when I'm preaching before. I made myself clear. They are patterns of virtue. Well, I have, in the new life, I have the spirit that points me to this way of thinking, these kinds of virtues I should live by. Why is it not all three? Because when I look at the old okay. description of that, I go, all of them apply. So there's even a number four that says all of the above. <laughs> it could be, could be. Because it, it designates our human response, our old self does, yeah. the spirit. It definitely is in conflict with the spirit. Yeah. And it definitely is our old life controlled by our simple Adam desires. And well, a couple of things there. I think you're right. You could do that. But let me suggest this. When it refers to the old nature, it says it's crucified. Crucified means death or cessation, if I take that word. And the verb is in the aorist tense, meaning at some place it was crucified, and I would say that was at the cross. The old self was crucified. And the word old is used consistently in Paul to refer to the life prior to conversion. The old man is the self, common humanist worn out by its bondage to sin and death at this point. So if that's the case, mm -hmm. you would say then that the old self is dead, therefore it can't exist in being if you take so it, if you take it, I mean, if you take that, as I try to say, it's a factual statement, not an experiential statement. It has died, the old self. My way of living, my lifestyle. I can be a Christian, you know, verbally, but my lifestyle is as though I lived here, not here. So your old self is dead, but your sinful nature is still alive, and so we often use old self, but we should be using the sinful nature, so to speak. Because my sinful nature is still alive, even though my old self has been crucified. Well, you can certainly take that view. Uh, if you have a sinful nature, there's no reason to talk about anything else. I have a sinful nature. In Romans 12, where it talks about um, being transformed, in the renewing of your mind. Mm -hmm. 
nature or something, I mean, something in it, that's not just your lifestyle because something changes inside. I mean, in, in your nature or your something, whatever you want to call it. But isn't it kind of a semantic kind of thing? Well, I'm, I'm not. Even though the old self has died and I've died to sin does not mean that I'm free from any kind of temptation or enticement to sin. Right. And I would always translate that with my old self I'm still battling with. Thus, that's why we need to number two as the most. Well, I don't mean to imply that we don't battle. We do. And when, it's, when I said it's a factual statement, not an experiential statement, it might be comparable to say I have a friend and he comes to me and he says, you know, I have to pay my school bill and I need $10,000. I say, I just happen to have it, but that's all I got. Would you loan it to me? I'll have it paid back in a month or so. So I loan it to him. Next day I see him, he's still afraid. I say, what's wrong? I can't pay my school bill. <laughs> well, go pay. I gave him the money. Well, I don't know. So he may still struggle with doing it. I see it. Well, let me, let me turn you to uh, I just think well Well, I'm not trying to convince you. I'm just telling you this is where I'm at. <laughs> I got a thought that might go along with it. Um, we don't want to diminish God's power. He's, he was powerful enough yeah. to crucify that. So. To get to the place where my lifestyle is exactly following and exemplified by the way I live out my life, the virtues in which are living in me. Now, I may sin, but that doesn't put me back into that lifestyle. It's not an either-or kind of thing. Trying to look at where I put that. What's your interpretation of lifestyle? Well, lifestyle is is a set of virtues. Let me turn to Galatians chapter chapter five. He says, "So I say, walk by the Spirit." In verse sixteen, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Now, flesh is the word that is used to translate sinful nature in the New Testament, in most of your translations. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict so that you may not do whatever you want. That's the verse I was getting at before. It's also in, in Romans. So these are the acts of the flesh. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and the like. So I see these kinds of things. I guess you want to say, I've got to have something in me that wants to do that. And Paul says, it's the flesh. The flesh is used, this term is used and broadened out to where it refers to an orientation of life exemplified by certain kinds of virtuous or non-virtuous acts. Take a look at 1 Corinthians. It's a good example of this. 1 Corinthians 3. Before you jump to that, okay. the end of that verse says, and I tell you again, as I have before, that anyone living that sort of life will die in yeah, that's pretty strong. Isn't it? Very strong. <laughs> in other words, I want you to live in the freedom of the gospel. Sin is there. It's so hard to get. And in the earlier section where we got a little more technical on sin. Sin to me, if I can define it. Sin, if I define sin for me. Sin is the displacement or distrust of what God has said in the light of a, a competing view. I use this illustration, you know, people always, people after church bring me snicker candy bars. But I say, to eat a snicker candy bar is the worst thing you can do. God says, thou shalt not eat snicker candy bars. If you do, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. But I like them. For some reason, I really like them. So I go to the store, and I see a Snicker candy bar. 
and I buy it and I eat it and I say, oh, that's good. Or I may have been living in the life of the Spirit and have been disciplining my life which says, no, you don't do that. And may enable me to say in my mind, because I think the key to the human person is found in the human spirit. The human spirit is the essence of who we are. Can contrary to the soul. The soul is the principle of life that empowers the body and its functional and neurological forces. But the spirit is that which enables us to engage in encounters and personal relatedness that is beyond the demands of my conditioned physical self. It enables me to have fellowship with God, human spirit and the divine spirit. When they are opposite of one another, we have all kinds of trouble. Let me read to you, you probably still have it, and then I'll finish with this. I did have it over here. These are some principles that I mentioned to you last time. I don't know if you have it anymore. It's called the concluding proposal. It was given to you back somewhere ago. But this is recorded at the beginning somewhere of this other book that I wrote. It's somewhere too. <laughs> Nature for me is my natural and conditionedness as a human person, my physical person. What makes me different than, than say, an animal who functions naturally? And so do I. Animals do not possess a spirit. That's my view. One place where it does in Ecclesiastes, but I write about. I think they miss the point. Of it. This is. Several premises I wrote out of a little book that some of you said they wanted to buy. And it was here a minute ago, but it's not here anymore. Unless it's under something, which is probably the case. Anyway, these are the premises. Okay. I write, the ultimate goal of redemption points beyond forgiveness, but not an exclusion of this. You can't, because forgiveness is our reconciliation with God but centers on the restoration of the image of God in believers. Apart from the human spirit, the divine spirit is personally unknowable. That is, the divine spirit is God. And then I go down, separated from its ground in the divine spirit or in God, the human spirit becomes dysfunctional, reversing its exocentric capacity. This is a funny word. Exocentric capacity means the capacity to reach out, and I defined it to love, honor, and worship God, and to love my neighbor as oneself, to an egocentric outlook which vitalizes and empowers human perversity. However, when restored back to its original ground in the divine spirit, the human spirit is called out of its utility and perversity into the light and truth of the divine spirit, where, and this last section was important to me, where and only where it can be true to itself, that is, as a human person, without losing its distinctive nature as a human spirit. I think being restored, the ultimate goal of God, is to restore humans back to the original purpose for which he created them. Not only us, but the world itself. Someday that will happen when Christ comes. We will be back. We'll have a new body. <coughs> and that last phrase, the body of sin, is the body with reference to sin. Now, please, you can hold any of this kind of thing you like. This is just, and I probably need more time to do it, but the body with reference to sin. And we can take a look at all the uses of body in the New Testament. But my human body is still subject to the enticements of sin. It has not been restored. My body has a lot of passions and a lot of appetites to which sin can appeal. But he says the body with reference to sin has been, the phrase is nullified. This word is only used 27 times in the attendant, 25 by Paul. That this body can say no. I can say no to my body. Take a lot of things. 
there's some things that just, you know, you know, if you offered me a package of cigarettes, you want a cigarette? Wouldn't tempt me at all. But there are other things that would. And those impulses, I buffet my body and bring it into subjection, unless after I preach the gospel, I should be a castaway. And he ends, and I will end, he ends with some imperatives. Take a look in your Bible at the very end. Yeah, I'll just listen here. Take a look at verses 11 through 14. Reckon yourselves dead to sin, and then the positive of alive to God. Reckon here is an accounting word. It's true. Believe it. It is an, an accounting term here. You have died to sin as a fact. You have $100,000 in your bank. Wishing. But it's there. And you can't go spend it. So it's the negative and the positive that he brings it because of these other factual things. And then number two, let not sin reign in your mortal body. Actually, this is an interesting Greek phrase. And you should, let not, could be translated, stop letting sin reign in your mortal body. Because you can. But stop doing it. I think you do that by constantly allowing, when you study the word of God, the truth to take root in your mind. So it impacts your way of thinking and seeing and therefore impacts, your, impacts the way you act. And the last one is here. Offer yourselves or present yourselves, that is the instruments of your body, to God. I had a good friend years ago at St. Paul Bible College. I don't know why we're talking. He says, every morning I say, Lord, here is my body. Take control of it because it will be tempted sometime today. Give me strength. If I do that enough times, my mind will start to change in this way. And if you take a look at those who mind the things of the flesh, the word mind here means your way of thinking. It's a special Greek word. It means the way you're thinking and mind the things of the spirit. I see a very close connection between the human spirit and the human mind. Close association between the two. If my mind gets into many other things, it'll start to impact the way I think and thus the way I act. Well, thank you, everyone.